Today is September 16th, Season 3, Episode 31. Decky Irishman, how are we? Ooh, Andy Double Ears. Doing great, brother. I'm saying Double Ears because you, you're a great listener. And you listen great to Coach John Tower. Dr. Coach John Tower? I don't know. We we say that because he's during, not only... During the season, he is Coach Dr. John Tower. And out of the season, he is Dr. Coach John Tower. Yes, exactly. Head coach of the University of St. Thomas basketball team and a professor of psychology as well at St. Thomas. It's a really, really interesting conversation. You guys are going to love it. He did his dissertation on intrinsic motivation. We will learn a lot about that in this podcast, as well as just a slew of things within coaching and uh, being a professor. With it, there's, it's just it's a beautiful conversation. You guys are going to love it. By far, one of my favorite podcasts we've done. And that's enough of us. Give it up for Coach John Tower. Coach John Tower, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and joining the Back Pocket Podcast. Guys, thanks a lot for having me. Great to be here. This is, uh, this is a challenge that we've gotten by two former guests. We had Coach Rosenthal and Coach Wally Kaczynski both challenge us to have you on, so this is a, uh, a story in the making. Absolutely. Well, and I hope I don't let them down. That's, it's rare that somebody would say that that's a challenge to talk to me. Uh, so Coach Rosie and Wally, two of my favorite guys and both outstanding people. So mm-hmm. uh, glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Not to mention you're also a uh, professor in psychology and have been for quite some time. So, I mean, balancing that right away is insane. I could say Coach Rosie was one of my first clients, right? And I did a lot of work <laughs> with him, but uh, that would be that would be untrue. No, I, I teach psychology and love doing that, social psychology and coaching basketball. And there's actually a big overlap that I'm sure we'll we'll get into. Yeah, absolutely. So I really want to start, um, I mean, we can start in the 90s. Let's start in the 90s. I mean, we were born in the 90s. You were playing basketball at St. Thomas in the 90s, and then eventually going to Madison for your doctorate. Um, Talk us through that. I mean, I really want to understand where this passion from psychology, obviously you're a tall guy, some good length on you. Um, How did that all come together? Yeah, well, so I grew up in St. Paul, uh, was not a very talented athlete. I was a decent athlete all the way along, but my dad... If I go back further to the 80s, if that's okay. Sure. Um, my dad ran mutual funds for a company in Minneapolis. And so that's what he did every day. But he started out as a grade school teacher. And he loved coaching. He didn't love teaching. And so he got out of teaching after a year. But he kept coaching this eighth grade Catholic school, nativity grade school right in St. Paul. He coached that team for 25 years. So he'd go to work every day, come home, have dinner, and go coach these kids at 630 every night. So it was one of those things I grew up with. And as a six-year-old, there's nothing cooler in the world than eighth graders, right? So that was sort of my reward every day is if I did my homework, I behaved, mom gave the thumbs up, and then I'd get to go to practice with my dad. And so that's that's really how I fell in love with basketball was nativity grade school in about first grade. Um, fast forward to high school, I was not – I was a good player, not a great player, worked really hard to get better. We ended up winning state titles in basketball and baseball, played with a lot of unbelievable players, um, and had great coaches. And I think in the back of my mind, I was always sort of curious why maybe some of the more talented players weren't always the hardest workers, how a coach formulates a team. So things like that were sort of percolating in my mind, but didn't necessarily know how to do it um, practically. And then fast forward, just about every aptitude test I ever took, 
said I should go into either finance or actuarial science. And I didn't know what actuarial science was at the time. I, it would have been good for me. I love numbers. That's kind of how I think. Um, but I didn't, I also didn't envision sitting at desk working in business my whole life. And so sophomore year at St. Thomas, you guys can probably relate. You're sort of like, what in the world am I going to do? I got to pick a major. I took a psych course, a social sociology course and an accounting course and just said to myself, whichever one of these three I like the most, that's what I'm going to major in. And so I was acing accounting, acing sociology, and I was getting a C in psychology and loving every minute of it. And so you're at one of those moments where you're like, all right, do I do what's not coming easily to me, but I, I feel passionate about it? Or do I go do accounting and play it safe and I'm going to be a pretty good accountant? So I remember calling my dad and saying, hey, I'm going to major in psychology. And I think his first response wasn't even what. It was more like, what is that? Right? I don't think he knew. what. And psychology at the time was less, certainly received less attention than it does today um but to his credit my mom's they were very supportive and he's like look i've always believed if you're really good at what you do you're going to find a job and so that that's the short maybe the long version of how i got there is i just i knew i wanted to study what made people tick ended up going to grad school and studying intrinsic motivation essentially why do people do things because they love it because they're passionate not for money or fame or prestige and have been able to sort of craft that into work in research teaching coaching and hopefully my entire life man i love how you started it with uh you you're claiming yourself not as the best athlete and that's something that we share full-heartedly that's why st thomas was also on the top of our list not being the greatest athlete in high school and realizing we wanted to continue to pursue that that love for the game and St. Thomas stuck out, stood out to us with it being uh, in the city. He's from Denver, and I'm from Chicago. So we wanted to get away from our little hubs, but we still wanted to be in a city. And then we, we built a bond together from being um, kind of low man on the totem pole in a, in a massive football program, a, a prestigious football program. And we share those same type of that love for the game, that drive, and that's why we kept on coming back, and that's what built uh, the back pocket, per se. That's mm-hmm. awesome. And it's cool, too, that like, you experienced – the intrinsic motivation of like simply loving psychology and your fascination with it. And then now, and then built your whole doctrine, right? Or how do you say dissertation Mm -hmm. behind intrinsic, intrinsic motivation of that, right? Yeah, I was pretty fortunate. So people ask, how do you coach and teach? And, um, my first, this is my 20th year at St. Thomas first 11 years as a full-time faculty member, tenured, et cetera, and doing a lot of research, teaching a full load on committees, but also coaching basketball and felt probably felt a tension there a lot of times during the season where you're feeling like you really are doing two full-time jobs. Now that I'm the head coach of the basketball team, this will be my ninth year, it's very clear that's where I should focus most of my time. I still teach a class every semester because I love it and I like to stay connected to students and role model for our players that lifelong learning is important. Um, but I did fall into the part you know, where – I was able to, I started running basketball camps at St. Thomas my senior year of college. So this was the 25th summer, which makes me sound pretty old, but the 25th summer running those camps. And I ended up doing most of my dissertation research at the camp when I was in graduate school. So I'd come back here every summer, run the camps, but I could tell my grad advisor, Judy Herakevich, who's one of the leading researchers in motivation in the world that, well, hey, I'm collecting data. And so here I am coaching camp back at St. Thomas, collecting data and it it just it all allowed me to to teach and coach and do research and have a synergy between them that probably couldn't happen in a lot of disciplines. So I was pretty fortunate. That's awesome. You know what's cool too is like intrinsic motivation, doing something that like satisfies you with really out any return 
in in terms of money or but you just do it because you enjoy it and that's something andrew and i have like really learned and walked into with this podcast like we've run it for since we were juniors in at st thomas and just kind of kept showing up every week because we love to do it um but we've really truly experienced what that intrinsic motivation is for us how would you define it well uh scientifically intrinsic motivations the desire to take part in an activity for its own sake so if you just strip it down the way i'll I'll explain it to students is it's a saturday afternoon you can do whatever you want in life and it's you're not going to take a nap you're not going to go play video games you're going to do something that's somewhat active and yeah so it could be riding a bike it could be reading a book it could be playing the guitar whatever it is but it's something you want to do purely for that activity there's no long-term payoff there's no attention in the moment. It's just how you're feeling when you're doing it. And, and certainly life, if all you do are selfish, intrinsic motiva- intrinsically motivated activities, that can be dangerous as well, right? And so a um, great mentor of mine, Mark Deanhart at, at St. Thomas for many years, he talked a lot that if you can find something that you love, that you're good at, you can help people. Those three things, if those intersect, you probably found something for yourself in life. And that's where I feel fortunate at St. Thomas that you know, I love teaching, coaching, working with students there. Um, I, I hope I'm helping them. I think I'm decent at what I do. And so those three things, it's just to me, having those reminders and sort of foundational concepts in your mind about how do I want to live my life. And so what you guys are doing here, I think everybody needs things like that in life. We all have to put a roof over our head, pay the bills. You have to, you have to make some money. But the research on happiness is really clear that if you look at the correlation between happiness and income and wealth, that there's a correlation to a pretty moderate point. And once you get to your basic necessities met, it's pretty flat line. That more money, if you make $100,000 a year and then suddenly you're making a million dollars a year, everybody thinks, oh, my problems go away. Well, no, all your problems don't go away. At least I don't think they do. I'll, I'll never make a million a year. But you you look at happiness and it really is far more about who you spend your time with, what you do. Uh, one of my favorite books, Dan Gilbert of Harvard, Stumbling on Happiness. And it's all about how the things that we chase for happiness don't correlate all that great with happiness. And the things that actually do, we oftentimes overlook things like relationships and activities. Mm. Sticking with the intrinsic aspect and kind of moving it into basketball, where did you find, um, in like from like a nuts and bolts aspect of of basketball, what was it the, in, inside that specific sport that you kept on wanting to come back to? That's a it's an interesting question, and and when you've done something, I mean, I've been in love with basketball since I was five or six years old. I still remember Seattle SuperSonics were my favorite team as a kid. Timberwolves weren't around, and this was at a time where the NBA the games were shown on tape delay. So I'd go to bed and beg my parents to wake me up at like midnight, and then they'd show the games. Literally, imagine the NBA finals being so unpopular at the time, relatively speaking, that they would show them not during prime time, but tape delayed at midnight. And there's no internet, so you're not, you don't know who won. And so my parents would wake me up, I'd watch them, and Seattle had this guy named Downtown Freddie Brown. And he could shoot threes like nobody else. So I fell in love with basketball, I fell in love with shooting threes. But when we talk about intrinsic motivation, there's one of the acronyms we use, an ARC to motivation, A-R-C, Autonomy, Relatedness, and Competence. And so if you think, you know, that's when I look at basketball or coaching a team or just doing a heat check on a player, autonomy. Did I freely choose to? Yeah, my dad never forced me to do it, right? You see so many times that parents um, are over-involved in their kids' sports activities. 
So I freely chose it. Relatedness. Well, I had lot, most of my best friends in life growing up were my high school and college teammates. I got to spend time with my dad every night. So in terms of the relationship part of it, that was there. And then competence. I was good enough that I felt like, hey, this is challenging. I love what I'm doing. And so I always look at it when people say, hey, I'm not feeling motivated. I go back to that autonomy, relatedness, and competence and ask them, how do you feel in these three areas? And if you're lacking in a couple of them, you can chip away at sometimes it's get better and you got to work at it. Other times it's figuring out within a team, all right, there's some dynamics between people right now that are stifling how good we can be. And so um, a lot of it stems back to those three things for me. Right on. That is super cool. So the, you know, downtown Freddie Brown shooting a lot of threes, University of St. Thomas also shooting a lot of threes. I'm seeing correlation (laughs) there. What is it about the three-point shot? I would even say currently – what what is so powerful about it because you're seeing every team adopt it like it's they're living not i wouldn't say living and dying by it but it's certainly increased yeah well i'm not a math professor but three is more than two Ooh, good right? point. michael That's hannon great... michael hannon did a lot of work on that and he through his <laughs> finance classes he was able to prove that um and he never shot a two i don't think actually um it, it, seriously i think the three-point shot I mean, I grew up, and part of it was I was not a great player. I was, a, uh, to be honest, I was a pretty good shooter. I did not drive the ball great. I wasn't a great post-up player. So probably before threes were really popular, I was a stretch four before they would have ever called me a stretch <laughs> four. I was just a skinny guy who shot threes. Um, but I think if you look at the way the games evolved, um, there's certainly last year we took more threes, not even close. We took more threes than we've ever taken. Um, part of that was we had really good shooters, guys like Michael Hannon, Ryan Lindbergh, Burt Hedstrom, Anders Nelson, Riley Miller, and several others where you look at our team last year, we didn't have a huge team. So some of it was fitting our personnel to a system, uh, which we try to do every year is don't be the same and don't be rigid. Um, but part of it, I, I think part of it too, is like any cultural movement, right? And, and three points are not a cultural movement like the civil rights movement, right? But you look at any movement and there's a tipping point. Malcolm Gladwell wrote the book Tipping Point several years ago and talked about how do phenomena take hold. Well, they usually, it's not a linear path. It's sort of logarithmic where it's a little bit, a little bit, and then boom, it takes off. Well, the reality is probably teams should have been doing this 25, 30 years ago, right? If you really look at statistically how few threes, somebody like Larry Bird, who's one of the better shooters in the NBA for years, but he didn't shoot that many relative to today. That said, I do think this is a generation that has grown up shooting threes. Mm. So they are better at it. Not necessarily individual players are all better, right? I think Steph Curry's the best shooter I've ever seen. But in terms of more shooters, right? Whereas before, if you were a shooting guard, you better be a good shooter, Declan. But if you're a power forward, you're not a shooter. Well, now it really is four guys better be able to shoot. And quite frankly, you look at the NBA, there are teams now that run five three-point shooters out there. And so what that does indirectly, the spacing and how it forces other teams to defend. Um, it's been interesting to see, especially over the last five years. And it's, you know, you back to Moneyball in the Oakland A's and now Daryl Morey with the Rockets. And I mean, that's where the nerdiness and the brain, the the math brain and me love studying that. And the pendulum will have to swing at some point, right? You look at the shot charts of the Houston Rockets right now and you're like, all right, they just don't take any two point shots at all. You're going home. You're getting cut if you take a two-point mid-range shot. and um, So I think that there are a lot of factors that go into it, but it's fascinating to really study um, and how, how much you should utilize a three-point shot. We talk about that a lot. Before last year, 
almost within a percent, 33% of our shots would be threes, 67% would be twos. And that would vary within players, but across our team, that was almost all. And last year, I think we were at over 40%, probably 44% of our shots or so were threes. So it was a dramatic increase, and we didn't tell our guys, shoot more. But some of it was who we had, and some of it was the way we played. Um, and so I, you know, even though I love the three, I'd prefer to probably have a little bit more balance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me put you in a situation real quick. Uh, and I don't, I, I'm not purposely making this time dependent, but work with me. Five seconds left. You're up three. Do you foul or let them take the three? Historically, we have played it out and not fouled. Okay. Now you can show me data that says you should absolutely not absolutely. It's close. You should foul. But that assumes that you've practiced it and the guys you have on the floor of all. Pre- so you get into a question, too, of how much time do you want to devote? Because the whole season, what do we teach our guys? Don't foul. Right. Don't foul people. Don't. Foul. And then all of a sudden, in that moment, in a game that might define our season, and now all of a sudden I'm saying, hey, you got to follow him. Well, you might execute it correctly or you might follow him as he's shooting. or you might. So there are a lot of things that can go wrong. Um but statistically, I, I I do think you're better off, and I don't love that rule. The one we were talking about this in our staff meeting yesterday that in virtually every sport there is a penalty for breaking rules, and basketball late game, it's about the only situation you can think of where fouling, committing a violation, gives you a better chance to win. So if you're down seven with a minute left, you should lose the game. You got outplayed, but you can actually get back in the game by fouling and making three-point shots. And so that's that's less related to your question, but it is the strategy of basketball at, at the end of the game I don't love in the sense that it should be the same game it was the first 38 minutes. You might change the tempo of it, but there shouldn't be more violations, right? In football, you don't see teams intentionally interfering on passes generally right. late in a game thinking that could help us. Um And I love how you answered it with uh, thinking it through emotionally, right? Because there's a lot of that money ball talk that you just mentioned, but you're looking at it from a chemistry standpoint, the uh, inside the arc, the, the relationship aspect. And I'm curious if you do anything specifically with your team to draw out that chemistry, to draw out that relationship so you can hone in on uh, player dynamic and, and that team bonding aspect. Yeah. I mean, that's a, I mean, I think that's a million-dollar question for every coach. How do you create that chemistry? And I can tell you this, um, it's it's uh, more organic than it is structured, right? When I look at over the last, let's say, 14, 15 years, and we've had a pretty good run in basketball, and you ask me who our best teams are, and then you ask me who had the best chemistry, and then you ask me who had the just natural closest friendships, those three things are pretty correlated. So it's one mm. thing to say, you guys got to be close. You got to get along. Well, you guys know if you don't like each other, all right, you're going to listen to me, but you're still probably not going to go to the cafeteria every night after practice. You're not going to hang out on Saturday night. You're going to go your separate ways. And you might have a fractured locker room, right, where you have two or three different factions. And that's not ideal. Now it's not easy to manufacture. And so chemistry is really, really important. You can do things to create it. But some of it is, I think, the people you recruit and how you um, or how they either intentionally or unintentionally become really close friends. The best friend, the best teams we've ever had have usually had senior classes that are just inseparable where they're looking at that season like this is something that we're all in on and that becomes contagious. I think at a micro level, every day in practice, part of it is how do you reinforce either subtly or explicitly 
unselfishness. So after a game, you score 32 points. Andrew and Declan has 12 assists and one turnover. And in front of the whole team, I talk only about Declan. And you're like, but hold on, I had 32. Yeah, I don't care. You did the easy work. You made shots. You made the layups that Declan put on a platter for you. And so trying to then reinforce, here's what we want. We want tough defense. We want unselfishness. We want guys who show joy on the floor. Scoring is the easy part. And hopefully over time, you don't. we need scorers. But over time, you realize, so I could have 20 points and eight assists, and Coach would like that a lot more than 32 points and zero assists. Absolutely. And so hopefully we play in a style that's predicated on unselfishness. And one stat I love is assist-to-turnover ratio. And last year we were second in the country, 425 teams, second in the country in fewest turnovers, and second in the country in best assist-to-turnover ratio. And so those are two stats to me, and we broke the school record for most points. And so when I talked to our guys last year offensively, we want them to play as fast as they can without compromising their efficiency or their decision-making. So I'll give them a lot of autonomy. We go back to that term. A ton of autonomy as long as they don't compromise the one thing I care most about, which is the basketball. So if they start getting reckless with that, then we're going to have problems. But if they're smart with the ball, we had, I think, five or six guys last year who averaged under a turnover a game, which is hard when you start thinking about, so I'm going to go out there and play 25 minutes and not turn the ball over once a lot of games. And so I think that's another part of it is building trust through not just your words, but your style of play. Sweet. I love that. And I know you mentioned earlier recruiting and like building that culture kind of from the ground, the grassroots. Also knowing that uh, you deal with the wasps, these well-intentioned, uh, oh, what are they, overcommitted parents, over-involved, over-involved yeah. parents. Um, how, like, studying and writing a book on that specific topic with how to be a good parent and everything, and then flipping it and recruiting these kids. What is kind of your recruiting style? How do you approach recruiting uh, for your for your team? Yeah, it, recruiting is. I mean, it's a huge part of it, right? As coaches, we all like to think that, you know, what we do every day is important, and it is, but the reality is if you don't recruit the right people, I don't care if you're a CEO of a company or you're a coach of a team, you've got to get people who are, we always talk about five things. One, are you a great person? Two, are you a great student? Three, are you a good player? Fourth, are you intrinsically motivated? Fifth, are you a good teammate? And so if you think about those things, great teammate, I should say, intentionally buried in the middle of that is good player. Because at the end of the day, if you give me 15 guys who are great people, great students, good players, intrinsically motivated, and great teammates. Now, just picture those 15 guys working together day after day after day after day for a year, for two years, for three years, for four years. By the end of four years, you're going to have a group of guys that has a ton of synergy because they're intrinsically motivated. They've gotten better. They've stayed out of trouble. They've gotten good grades, and they've made each other better. We're going to have a great team. Now take these other 15 guys who are freak athletes, unbelievable prodigies, but they're not good people. I go to bed at night worrying if they get in trouble, worrying if they're going to be ineligible. They're not intrinsically motivated. They're extrinsically motivated, which at a Division three school, you don't have a scholarship, so you better have a high level of intrinsic motivation, and they're not good teammates. Well, just picture those 15 guys. Ten of them are going to be irate that they're not playing. The five on the floor are going to be fighting over who gets to shoot, and it would, it would be a disaster. And so when you think about the qualities, now I could go into each of those five buckets and talk more about skill sets and how do you get more nuanced, but really those are the things we look at, that if we find a guy and we say he checks those five boxes, historically it would tell us he's going to be pretty good. Now, it doesn't always happen right away for somebody, right? When you think about 
your careers at St. Thomas and how few freshmen started. You think about basketball at St. Thomas. There's one guy in the last 40 years who started every game for four years, Tyler Nikolai, who was our All-American point guard in 2011. He's the only guy. We've had a couple other freshmen start, but then either you know something happens. They don't start all the games. They don't start all four years. One guy in 40 years, which means when you're recruiting, I'm going to tell him we had a freshman start for us last year. We had two freshmen start off and on the year before. It's not impossible. But if you're co- if all you want to do is play a lot as a freshman, you probably should go somewhere else. If you want to be a part of something where you get mentored by people who, by the time you're a junior, you're ready to play against anybody in the country, and you're as good at your position as anybody in the country, and hopefully we're in a Sweet 16, a Final Four, playing for a national championship, which there's no guarantees of. But now you're going to have something special, and quite frankly, that to me is what you hope kids learn from sports is, how do I get a little bit better every day? Because if you choose a school and you don't get challenged and you start as a freshman and you walk through, you're probably at the wrong school. You're going to graduate at 22 and think that whatever company hires you, they're going to hand you. No, that's not going to happen. So to me, and as a parent, I've got a junior in high school, freshman in high school, two boys. That to me is all I want. They're never going to pay their mortgages. At least I don't think so, Jack or Adam. Uh, (laughs) They're not going to pay their mortgages playing sports, but they are going to pay their mortgages someday by grinding through adversity and figuring out how do I move my way up the totem pole? And that's what I want our guys to learn when we recruit them. Not all parents love hearing that. Right. right? When I initially wrote the book, I had about five parents on our team text me and say, ah, I hope you're not writing about me. My older son, who's kind of a smart aleck, will be at games and parents are kind of, you know, they're chirping too much at the refs. And he'll usually look at me and say, hey, dad, you want me to go give him a book? And, <laughs> and I haven't allowed him to do that yet. But but most parents are great. I mean, that's the title of the book, Well-Intentioned Over-Involved Sports Parents. They're great. They want the best for their kids. They just, we all have to realize, look, as much as I want my kids to succeed, part of succeeding is going to be falling, scraping their knee, bumping their elbow, getting a bruise, getting a sprain. And those are metaphors, right? That they're going to get cut from teams. They're going to fail. They're going to lose games. That's okay. What'd you learn from that? And if you learn those lessons from sports, it served you well. If you don't, then sports were just sort of this vacuum that didn't serve a function. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Far too often, Andrew and I are always sitting in here, you know, battling through the adversity that comes with running a podcast. And everything that we have operated to this day has always become or has always come through the things that Coach Caruso has taught us or instilled in us. Mm -hmm. And that comes out in this podcast tenfold. And he brought up a great point about like battling through the adversity through those four years is what's really going to prepare you for finding what you want to do there on after. Um, can we reach into the bucket of that intrinsic motivation of like what are kind of those qualities or things that you see in people where you're like, that dude's motivated as hell. I want that guy on my team. Yeah. Um, I've got a picture in my office of one of former players, Peter Leslie. And Peter was on the 2011 national championship team, was a junior captain on that team. And so the picture in my office is it's a July day. Um, we can't work with our players in the off season. So somebody else took the photo. I wasn't in there with him. But he's in there shooting. It's 85 degrees. Anybody else would want to be out on a lake. They'd want to be doing something else. And Peter's in the gym shooting by himself. And so that picture is front and center in my office in part to tell recruits, this is what we want. We don't want you obsessed with basketball, but we do want you where you wake up every day, where that is a part of who you are, where you say, I want to be in the gym every day. I want to be in the weight room every day. It's not more important. Our our mission statement, our program, faith, family, academics, athletics. 
Honor the first two, excel in the last two. And so faith and family, those come before school, and school comes before basketball. And if you get those priorities in the wrong order, then we've got problems. That doesn't mean you might not like basketball more than organic chemistry, per se. But it's not more important, right? And so when you look for intrinsic motivation, some of it's talking to high school coaches, some of it's talking to parents, some of it's just talking to the kids, and you see, you hear what they talk about, right? If they're talking about how many followers they have on Twitter or Instagram, probably extrinsically motivated. Talking about how many offers they have, probably extrinsically motivated. Asking how many minutes they're going to get as a freshman, probably extrinsically motivated. If it's a kid who says, I just want to be a part of your program and I want to compete for championships and do anything I can, those are the kind of selfless competitors that you want because you know they don't care if they score four points or 20. They're going to be in the environment that's going to help them develop as a person. And so Peter was one of those guys. He was the all-time leading scorer at Henry Sibley High School when he graduated there. They were second in the state to Minnetonka his senior year in 08. And he came to St. Thomas, and the only thing we ever had to yell at him about was not shooting enough. Mm. And he would constantly just say, look at the guys around me. I want." And he always wanted to make an extra pass. And so those are the guys. It's no secret he was on a state finalist in high school. No secret why he was on a state champion in, in college. He didn't care what he did. He cared about being a great teammate. And so those are, those are the kind of people. Lonnie Robinson was an 09 grad who really helped our program get to another level. And he's probably as good a defender as we've ever had. You talk about the intrinsic motivation. I remember talking to him after a game where he played at Osseo High School, and um, they had lost, and he had about 24 points, which was uncommon for Lonnie. He always jokes, we we ran one play for him in four years at St. Thomas. He was a three-year starter, and it wasn't intended for him. We ran it the wrong way. We were supposed to run it left. We ran it right, so he got the double screen, hit a three, and was like, Coach, if you just do this more often. Well, at Osseo, <laughs> he didn't score a whole lot. I'll never forget after a game they lost, which they didn't do very frequently, he had 24 points, and he was in tears after the game. He couldn't talk to me. It was a regular season game. And I'm like, this is the kid we need. He doesn't care if he scores. He wants to win. He wants to be part of a championship. Um, then I'd go to games where he'd score four points, and they'd win. And after the game, he'd come up, give me a big hug. Hey, coach, how you doing? Thanks for coming to the game. So those are two examples. One's the yeah. gym rat. One's the one who only cares about the team and doesn't care about himself. Right on. And and a lot of that has that natural competitiveness inside them. And I'm curious your stance, and I'm, I'm guessing I already know the answer to it, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Um, with your uh, your student, your kids in high school right now, are they playing multiple sports? Because the, the thing that sticks with me when I was in high school is I was a track athlete. I played football and I played basketball, but my track athletics is going to stick with me the longest because I was competing by myself. And that was the only time where it was truly on me. And I learned a lot at that point um, outside of like relays and stuff like that. Um, so I'm curious how you view um, playing multiple athletics with basketball being such a, uh, a sport where it's uh, you want to play that uh, for the, for the whole year. Yeah, and, and that is a, I mean, it's one of those great questions, certainly especially over the last 30 years, um, probably 20 years, it's tougher and tougher. And and you'll read the studies where college coaches will say, we want multi-sport athletes, and here's the reasons why, and there are lots of really good reasons why, and I'll give you two examples um, on extremes of the continuum. Uh, my boys both play soccer and basketball right now, so they're still playing those. Now they also play basketball in the spring the older one does in the summer. So really, he's playing basketball from November until the end of July. And so he's never he didn't play soccer until high school, and he went out for the team. So I love that he plays a sport that 
He doesn't know nearly as well. He's kind of a bull in a china shop on a, a soccer field, but he's a competitor and he likes to be part of a team. So I like watching that. I don't know anything about soccer, even though it overlaps with basketball in terms of, I think, spacing and angles and um, sort of geometry. But the it is really difficult. Like he gave up baseball last year. Uh, his sophomore year said, I don't want to play anymore. And mainly he didn't like it. And I forced him to play his freshman year because I knew he wanted to play basketball year round. And I'm like, you're not like that doesn't make sense to me in ninth grade, even though I love basketball. Right. I'd rather rather probably watch him play basketball than watch him play baseball. He was really good at baseball. Didn't like it. Okay, well, you're not going to force him to do that. Right. And so often you see people get forced into what he was much better at baseball than he is at soccer. But he likes soccer. Um, The challenge, I think, is kids really get forced to choose. And so I've had multiple parents in the last two months tell me stories about during the summer, especially, right, where the football coach wants him at weightlifting and football workouts in the morning, which makes sense. Basketball coach wants him at open gym and their skill workouts makes sense. Baseball coach says you've got to be at our Legion games or VFW makes sense. But you can't do all three of those every day. And then sometimes, you know, and, and everybody likes to say, well, yeah, play multiple sports until their sports, the one that's sacrificing. Right. And so it's really tough for coaches and there's or for kids. And I don't think there's an easy solution short of high school coaches working better together, but then you've got AAU coaches in basketball, right? And I coach my son's AAU team. So I coached a 16 year old team this summer and spring great time, but that takes a lot of time for the kids. So that's, I mean, I'm giving you a lot of a long winded answer, but mm-hmm. I love multiple sports it's really hard. It's, it's, it's so much harder for kids to play three sports, virtually impossible. I would say, unless the high school coaches just say, we're going to let you do whatever you want in the off season. Gotcha. I do like the idea though, of like evaluating what you like at that age and not having to be forced um, one way or the other. I played um, lacrosse and football when I was young, but I also think back to even when I was in like fifth grade and the crazy things I was getting myself into like swim team I like was on the junior golf team I um played lacrosse I think I was playing baseball still and I had like just quit um soccer so I could play football and it was like so cool to think back at that time because it was like I saw a kid my my best friend just got into lacrosse was loving it the next day I went to my mom hey mom can I play lacrosse and I always like think back to those moments because I'm looking at myself now and I'm like, I do stand up comedy, I do podcasting and I'm an engineer to pay the bills. But it's not like I'm asking my mom, Hey mom, can I go do stand up comedy? I'm just like, I wanna try this out. This would this sounds really, really fun. I wanna do that. And like the not like I'm getting paid or not like I'm sleeping a lot, but I do really, <laughs> really like these things. So I wanna ask like when you see your players graduate, when you teach all these kids in your social site classes you're i mean you're always evaluating and learning about everybody i'm curious on your thoughts on like our age or this age that uh that we live in as 23 to 26 year olds maybe somewhere in that range of like what that life's all about it's it kind of blows my mind man i love your thoughts on it so how do i um, view the life right out of school yeah and, and how you advice can... maybe too especially coming from a, a college coach and knowing that they're not going to have that sport anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. And that, and that can be a difficult transition, right? Because for most, for most student athletes, that's something that 
you probably played that sport since you were seven, eight years old, exactly. right? And so that's a it's a big part of your self concept. I remember our last game in college. Um, it ended. It, we went to the final four my junior year, senior. Year, we we're twenty seven and zero, and I won't say we got upset. We lost to a really good team, but we got beat in the second round and just got our butts kicked. Like it was it was sort of like, whoa, we just won twenty seven straight games and one bad night, and they outplayed us. We got our butts kicked. But waking up the next day and feeling different, like whoa, that that's it. And my self concept is my roommate and I. He was our point guard, and we both felt exactly the same way. Where it's like this feels different waking up this Sunday morning than any time since I was a kid. And I think that can be a tough transition. And I've played and coached and seen a lot of people. You know, I talk about sports can be a landing area or a launching pad. And if it's a landing area, that means you're playing sports, but there's really no it's not leading you anywhere. It's just, there's an end game of sports. And those are oftentimes the athletes. And you read about this sadly with pro athletes a lot, right? Where it's even more difficult for them because they may wake up at age 35 and they get released by a team. Well, they may have plenty of money. I don't care how much money you have. If that's your whole identity, you wake up in the morning and you're like, where do I go? I've gone to practice every day for the last 30 years. What do I do now? And so that, that landing area I think is dangerous, the launching pad is how do you take the qualities and characteristics that you honed through sports? Accountability, selflessness, discipline, whatever kind of motivation, competition, cooperation, those variables. How do you take those and translate them somewhere else? And I don't care if it's accounting, if it's venture capital, if it's teaching, being a doctor, a lawyer, being a parent. Those are the ways that when I when I look at our players, it's you hope those translate. Now, I look at the age of 22 to 26 as a great time to be curious, be creative, try lots of different things. Um, college, you certainly get to do some of that, right? You get to take different courses. You get to try different things, maybe do internships, but you're still in college under those rules. And there are rules as far as you got to take this many credits and here's how you graduate. The rules of the game get much broader once you graduate, right? And now all of a sudden it's like, I get to do whatever I want. There's ramifications and there's consequences to those choices. But I think it's really important in those years uh, unless you know exactly what you want to do, right? There are some people who say, I know I want to go to med school. All right, go to med school. I knew I wanted to go study motivation. I was fortunate to have a chance to do that. But even that, I look back at grad school from 22 to 27, and that was a time where I probably learned more about myself than any other period. I moved to Madison. I didn't know anybody there. I'm all on my own. So in some ways for me, that was a huge growth period, Um but I also, it's easy to say just be creative. I think there has to be a little bit more intentionality than that in terms of it, today in social psych class, we were talking about Bill Gates and all the, the people in the personal computing revolution. And if you look, almost all of them were born between like 1953 and 1956. Mm. And it wasn't anything magical about those four years. It was when those guys were 14 or 15 years old, many of them got exposed to computers and they started learning them and mastering a skill well, if Gates had been born five years earlier, he's 20 or 21 in a college computer lab, and he's thinking, well, this is cool, but I got to go get a job because I'm graduating from college. Instead, he practices and works on it. And so it's, it's amazing when you look at the situational opportunities that are presented to us. He didn't know it at the time, but if he had been born five years later, he probably works for Bill Gates or a Steve Jobs. If he's born five years earlier, he's working, he's wildly successful, but he's not probably starting Microsoft. Somebody else does that. And so I think along with curiosity, I would say the second part is how can you intentionally surround yourself with people and opportunities 
that are going to make you a better person. You know, the old adage, you want to be a millionaire, hang out with millionaires. Well, I hope that's not the only goal people have in life. So I always talk about, you want to be a really kind person, hang out with really kind people. You want to grow and develop, hang out with people that you're like, that person makes me think every day I'm around them. And I think that would be the other thing for 22 to 27 year olds is spending time with people you want to be more like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My dad always told me, um, show me your friends, I'll show you your your future. Mm -hmm. And then his biggest piece of advice when graduating college was to have roommates. And that goes exactly with what you're saying. And I truly believe the people in this house and the people that we interact with all the time are doing similar things to what we're doing with this podcast. They're finding love outside of work or even inside of work and then finding an additional thing to do when they get home. And it's it's uh, something that's not talked about, I believe, enough with being 22 to 27. It's a lot of uh, go find a fun experience out when you uh, finish your nine to five, like plan a trip or something along those lines. But having an entrepreneurial spirit in whether it's just like starting an Instagram page and taking pictures of food you love, or it's having conversations with awesome people such as yourself um, three times a week, uh, there's in all the variations in between that has helped me really um, find some uh, stability in this uh, very anxiety driven world with me not having football anymore. So you sharing that with saying uh, surround yourself with people that are uh, love what they're doing and will ha- or you find similar attributes really sticks with me. And I appreciate you saying that. Uh, but to transition to the back end of our show and ask our core questions. Um, We told you those a little bit beforehand. And before we get to those, I want to give an opportunity for Jack Burke to ask a question because I know you got one over here. All right, Uh, Jack, fire away. This is now I'm a little anxious. You know, this is like they've been saving the big fella. (laughs) No, I didn't. We call him the big fundamental (laughs) (laughs) 2.0. I'm curious what your keep, start, stop is right now in your life. Keep, start, stop. Yeah. Is that a, isn't that a St. Thomas basketball? Correct me if I'm wrong, but <laughs> keeps the, what is it? Is that is that a a thing you guys go off of or? Uh, so what do you want to keep doing? Keep doing, stop doing, start, start doing, doing, start doing in your life. Keep start stop. Hmm. Um, I'd say I want to keep sp- keep enjoying time with family and watching my sons grow and develop while getting to work in a career that that I love. Um, I, I feel really, really fortunate to be able to do those things and have, and be able to balance them. It's not always an easy balancing act. I don't like saying juggling cause juggling, you eventually drop balls. So balancing, I like a little bit more, but it's still, um, you know, it's always challenging. Uh, what I'd like to start doing, I, I would, and this was probably getting back to in the summer, I read a lot. Um, I'd like to start reading more during it's, it's difficult during the school year, but I find whenever I take time to just read a book, by the end of that book, I feel like a slightly different person. And you, you internalize probably one or two things from a book, right? I, I just finished uh, three books recently, but one of them is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Yes. Yeah. My mom gave that That's to me, cool. and then I gave it to Declan. We are all fired up about Phil Knight right now. Yeah, well, and for you guys, that goes back to the question you asked, what should you do from 22 to 26? Well, mm-hmm. he and his buddy went off to Hawaii. And his buddy fell in love, and Phil Knight's like, uh, I thought we were going to travel the world here. And his buddy's like, yeah, I'm in love. I ain't going anywhere. And Phil Knight's torn then because it's a lot harder to travel the world by yourself than it is with a friend, right, and somebody to laugh with. And um, that book to me, what a reminder of chasing something you're passionate about, 
knowing the ups and downs. And I think for young people, especially you read a book, I don't, and you don't have to agree with everything Nike's done over the years, right? Or everything Microsoft's done over the years, but you read a book like that and it's like, all right, how many times did Phil Knight go to bed thinking this is it? It's over. <laughs> the dream is dead. And not just in year one, right? But in year four and year eight, when, when the government's coming after him for $25 million and he's thinking, all right, this is it. And they were doing pretty well at that point in time. Um, so those, those kind of lessons, I think, uh, whenever I read, listening to podcasts like this, when I, I so I, the other part is how do you uh, um, stop? And I'm going to try and tie these together uh, for parsimony's sake. The uh, how can I be more efficient with time? And there's a balance between being efficient with time and enjoying yourself, right? And mm. there are times where you just want to sit back and relax, and then you're like, hold on, that half hour, what could I have been doing? So lately, what I what I'm trying to stop is being inefficient uh one of the ways when i'm biking uh listening to podcasts like this versus just listening to music and again same thing you listen to an hour podcast while you're biking you get done you're like all right i killed two birds with one stone or three i was out in nature which is good for our psychological well-being got exercise which is good and stimulated my brain Cool. How's right. that, Jack? Perfect. Thank boy, you. Jack. Way to think of a question on the spot. Appreciate you. Can I also just compliment you real quick on how good you are at answering questions? Uh, I make most of it up. but <laughs> <laughs> No, it's just cool because I can see how your brain's working, like connecting what the atten- the initial intention of the question is with like a story or something that you have. So I just, it's very fun to listen to, to be well, honest. This is a great podcast. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Part, part of it is when you get old enough, you better have a core set of beliefs, right? So... At this point, if I can't answer some of these questions, you guys should say, what have you been doing the last 20 years? (laughs) Um, But the other part is, I think, realizing that there are no absolutes in life, right? That each one of us, so Kevin Eastman is a former college and pro coach. He was Doc Rivers' assistant with Boston Celtics when they won the title and then with the L.A. Clippers. And he's now doing a lot of speaking, but he has a book that he recently published called Why the Best are the Best. And he talks about 25 powerful words in there, and it's a simple a simple book in terms of not its ideas, but just reading it. And you can read it in little chunks. It doesn't take a long time, but he's probably the best speaker I've ever heard where he has lists where if you ask him, tell me about your non-negotiables, boom, here's a six non. And he's done it long enough where he knows this is what I believe. It doesn't necessarily mean it's right, but it's what he believes. Dick Bennett, uh, he was the coach at Wisconsin when I was a grad student. And so even though I was studying psych, I knew I wanted to be a coach and I had the, those were his five years in Madison. So I got to see them from when he took over and they were not very good and he made them better to when they were in the final four in 2000. And he has a great uh, instructional video where he talks about his non-negotiables and he goes through and he says, look, I've coached basketball 40 years from high school basketball in Eau Claire to Stevens Point and when they were in AIA to Wisconsin Green Bay small D1 to the Badgers to Portland or Washington State. And now his son Tony's the Virginia coach just won the national championship. And he said, look, I've done this for 40 years. We've gone under ball screens, we've gone over ball screens, we've blitzed ball screens, we've switched off ball screens, we've fronted the post, we played behind the post. We do- and he's like, I don't know what's right. And he, so he goes through all these things and he's like, look, I'm a pretty good coach. I don't know the best way to do it, but here are five things I do know. And then he starts in on his non-negotiables. And that to me, for young coaches, figuring out what are who are those guys that are going to be your mentors and what are your non-negotiables going to be? Because at the end of the day, our players are going to forget a lot of the noise that they hear in practice. My students in a 100-minute social psych class, what are they going to remember? 
I don't, they're not going to remember all of it, but they are probably going to remember the way they felt in class. And they're probably going to remember those really powerful stories. And so to me, having those non-negotiables that if our players forget everything on the floor, except some basic principles, we're probably going to be okay. We got really talented players. If they don't remember those things, they're going to be five guys just doing their own thing. My favorite thing about this podcast is the correlation between different conversations we have. And on Tuesday, we had a guest in here, Miles Biggs, who's 29 years old. He just switched jobs from construction to marketing. And we asked him what's in his back pocket, and he said his non-negotiables. And to see the evolution of that, him um, starting to figure out those non-negotiables to you having some in concrete, maybe some are ever changing, um, but some are always evergreen. And uh, that's, it's the, it's the most exciting aspect of this podcast uh, because we get, I truly believe we get the most benefit. I want our listeners to truly take as much away out of it, but I'm sitting here having these conversations and I know that I can become a better person if I truly listen and I truly embrace what the person across from me is saying. So thank you for taking the time and, and truly giving us these incredible answers. This is, a, this is an awesome this podcast. Is sick. Yeah. <laughs> but to transition to the back pocket core questions, uh, the first one is, what's your average quality? And this is a unique question because not many people are asked what they're average at. This is something you do well at times and other times not so well. So Coach John Tower, what is your average quality? Yeah, that because I can give you lots of bad qualities. My kids could give you lots of bad qualities. Um, I'd say my average quality, probably communication, um, I, because I think I can get real in my own head. So there's some days where I'm really communicative, but I'm also very content reading and not talking and um, kind of going into my own head. And so being self-aware enough to know, all right, when should I be sort of aware of everything around me and when's a good time to be reflective and think? And you can get in ruts right in life where you can, we talk about vicious cycles, virtuous cycles. You can get in vicious cycles where you're not listening, you're not communicating. And, and so I think that's something that is an ongoing challenge that how uh, and you don't want to have to communicate every day. Right. If every day people assume, well, you teach a course in motivation, what are your motivational speeches? We've recruited the wrong players if before every game we have to give a motivational speech. Right. I think before the game should be relatively mundane if we've done this properly because we're intrinsically motivated and we all know what's at stake we're all excited to go out there if i have to give a big speech today to get you guys pumped up well then next game the only way we're going to be good is if i do something a little bit better and so i think you know figuring out I think I'm a decent communicator. I saw you kind of roll your eyes like, wait a second here. What are you doing? You're killing the communication. You're not a bad communicator or average. Come on. But but my the understanding when to over communicate, when to under communicate. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how how much are we communicating? I mm-hmm. like that. The quantity in in terms of of communication. I like that. The uh just like the self awareness of the whole thing, right? It's just such a challenge. I think that's what is really cool about the average quality in itself is the fact that you're looking inward to find that one thing that you may not be that good at. And what we've kind of um, realized throughout this time of challenging ourselves every single week with average qualities is um, these things can become strengths, right? Like I never really thought that something you're average at would become something you're great at. But the fact that you don't reckon, if you don't recognize those things, they just kind of fall off the face of the earth. Well, I'll give you an example. So my, my kids just went back to school, right? So they're yeah. in high school. So the end of summer, we took a couple of great trips this summer. We spent a lot of time together. And there's just, you know, coaching my older son's team. We were on the road a lot for that. So 
I felt like there was a lot of really good interaction. And then school starts, and all of a sudden, about a week goes by, and you realize, like, all right, they're out the door by 6.15 in the morning, and we may not see each other again till 7 o'clock at night, or one has soccer from 5 to 7, one from 7 to 9. And a week can go by, and I can realize I haven't been in the same room with my two boys at all. And so how do you then – so that's more where I'm talking about the communication, yeah. being aware and saying, all right, I need to make some time on Saturday no matter what I had planned. I need to set aside a couple hours, and then it's convincing teenagers that it would be cool to hang out with their dad. So I may be aware of it. They may also say, yeah, dad, we're okay. Mm. We got other stuff to do. What's like the activity that you bring up or do with your kids that they're like, all right, I'll hang out with dad? <sighs> Going to Chipotle? Yeah. Oh, dude. Absolutely. Uh, Menchie's frozen yogurt right down the street. So usually I'll try and get them to walk there. It's about four blocks. And then, then I've got them captive, right? Where it's yep. like, we're going to walk down there and they'll say, well, let's drive. My older one now has a nicer car than I have. And he, he wants to drive there. I'm like, no, we're walking. If you want me to pay, you want to pay, go ahead and drive, uh, shooting. So if I'll go rebound for him, that, that I think is a lot of fun because it's something where I can work with them on it, but it's also, you know, almost a, I mean, a, a gym, an empty gym is like a sanctuary. So we go over there and just shoot hundreds of jumpers. Um, so those would be three examples, I'd say, of things that they still um, they still like doing with me. If if my son or daughter doesn't like uh, playing catch, I'm going to be a little disappointed <laughs> because they don't have to be great at it. But I just want to be like, I'm horrible at throwing a football, even though I played football for 13 years. But I love I'm not I'm not a great baseball player, but I love playing catch with uh, at, at baseball because it's just a that motion and just relaxing yeah. and you're just throwing it back and forth. It's such a simple art, but it's there's like a lot of simple joy in it. <laughs> I saw a glove line around our house the other day, and I got a little nostalgic because for years that's what we do. We play wiffle ball in the front yard. We created sort of this big wiffle wiffle ball game during the summer that would just happen with whoever is around in the neighborhood. Um, and I asked my son not too long ago, Jack. I was like, "Hey, you want to play catch someday?" And he's like. Why would we do that? Because he's now playing baseball. I'm like, just yep. for old time's sake. And he didn't he didn't necessarily see the value of it. But I will say, going back to choice and sports, multi-sport athletes, hockey was the one thing. Like, I would have let him try just about anything. Hockey was the one I knew from the, the, the get-go. I'm like, I don't think this would fly in my house. Because it's hard to basketball and hockey, right? Those are almost different worlds. Um, best story I've heard of that, Wildeberg, who was a 2013 grad. His dad grew up in Edina and really good player. But he all of a sudden one day he's like, Dad, I want to play hockey. And his dad, Craig, loves basketball. And he's like, uh, you're not playing hockey. But he wanted – so he's like, all right, let's go skate. And Edina's got good skaters. So Will's a little behind, but he's athletic. So he does great. He gets off, and he's like, that was unbelievable, Dad. But my feet, God, they're killing me. And his dad's like, yeah, if you're going to play hockey, that's how they're going to feel every day. And he's like, yeah, I just don't think I can do it. Well, his dad had rented skates three sizes too small for him, knowing that <laughs> he was gonna hurt I'll me. let him try hockey for a day, but he's going to feel some pain. And, you know, fortunately for us, he ended up playing basketball for yep. UST. That's, That's too funny. Awesome. What do you uh, think about, I mean, you mentioned like the the uh, kind of polarization between hockey and uh, basketball. What do you think about when hockey players are calling uh, basketball the sport soft? Um. Because it know, happens a lot, you know. There's a lot. Of, there's a friendly rivalry, I'd say, between hockey and basketball, <laughs> football and ba- I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I always go back to football and, and hockey, and those coaches don't like it when I say, well, Glenn, our guys don't wear pads, they and they don't get 30 seconds in between plays to respond to the next, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's beautiful things about every sport, really. Like, I watch football and the organization of that 
to me is incredible. And obviously we have great sports programs across the board. I watch soccer and the free flowing nature of that or hockey. So to me, it really is what you learn from different sports, whether it's a team sport, an individual sport. That's what it's all about is figuring out, all right, how am I going to utilize this in my life? And really, it does take some different skill sets to play football than it does to play basketball or baseball, etc. And so I, I mean, I, I don't watch a lot of sports because I spend so much of my time immersed in it. But I do think just about every sport is has beauty to it in terms of how it's structured. And then it's figuring out the rules of the game, right? It's like, what's the rules and of combat and how do I maximize my chances? And then we have the opportunity to talk about it here on the back pocket, Absolutely. which is even cooler. So your average quality is communication. The next question we love to ask is what's in your back pocket? And this is something when stress is becoming pressure and anxiety is rising or pressure is becoming stress and anxiety is rising. What is in your back pocket to overcome these situations? Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. It's one we talk about a lot in psychology and motivation. Um, and I would answer that a couple different ways. I think one of it is your your core values and fundamentals, right? So I'd say part of it was the unconditional love I had as a kid. And it's not like I think now do my 78-year-old parents love me. They do. I love them. But it's growing up knowing that if I fail, it's not going to indict me as a human being. And that's not always easy as a young kid to understand, right? Uh, so I think knowing that unconditional love from um, people in my life, I think the other part is having failed enough times to know it's not the end of the world, right? Perfectionism, um, it can lead to high achievement. It can also be debilitating in other areas of life. And so knowing that as high as our standards might be, we're going to fall short of them. There's 425 teams in the country. One of our goals every year is to be the best team. We've done it twice in 105 years of basketball at St. Thomas. And Two's pretty good to do it. We're, we're not going to do it most years. So knowing that up front, that if you dare to be great, that's one of our mantras that I got from my high school baseball coach, Dennis Denning. Dare to be great. If you dare to be great, you're going to fail a lot, knowing that that's okay. Um, and then I think the third thing are painful but powerful lessons that I learned in life, oftentimes from coaches, um, sometimes teachers, sometimes parents certainly, but some of the most powerful lessons I learned as a, as a high school and college athlete that didn't go my way and really sucked at the time. And a couple of years later, you look back and you're like, that actually made me better. And I think that's one of the challenges of life is none of us want to run our head into a brick wall and feel pain day after day after day after day. But those are the moments. And if they happen over and over again, we're going to probably live, lead a life that doesn't have enough happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment. But at those critical moments where whether it's an injury, whether it's getting cut, whether it's losing, what, whatever that pain is and figuring out, all right, what am I going to learn from this and how am I going to change, you know, keep, start, stop. How, what am I going to stop doing? How am I going to do something different moving forward? Um, so I think those are three ways from my foundation as a, as a kid to, um, you know, painful lessons that I've had to um, just knowing what I think at this point in my life I believe in and win or lose we always say as coaches recruit guys that you can lose with doesn't mean you want to lose but it means if we lose i'm going to sleep at night saying these are some great guys who i love coaching and i would do anything for and we're not happy about losing but we lost together you don't want to win with bad guys i mean that's that's a bad feeling if you're winning with players and you're like i don't even like the guys i'm coaching but we're getting w's so the first one really sticks with me um family oriented gratitude 
And this is a, a question that my dad asked. I told him you were coming on the show and kind of your background a little bit. And he's like, oh, ask him this question. And it involves in a, a legacy. So for football's sake, Coach Caruso has an acronym for it. Let each generation's accomplishments continue yours. That's the legacy that he broke it down. So I'm curious, Coach, if you have thought about your legacy and, and when you're done coaching, when you're done teaching, what do you want to be remembered for? Yeah, and Coach Caruso and I have lots of conversations. I remember when he came up with that acronym, and we have lots of philosophical discussions about these kind of things. Um, I think more than anything, you and you, it's hard to be limited, right? So at one level, I'd like to say, hey, we want to win this many championships, and that's important, your success. But it's, I think, more valuable, the impact you have on people. And so you know, when you look at a legacy, I think it's, probably a lot like planting a garden or crops 20 years from now what are the guys who played for us what are the students who took my course what are they doing in life and hopefully I had some small positive impact um, because small positive impacts I think back to the people who changed my life the most a ninth grade basketball coach who just said hey you know you're the best shooter in the school but if you don't get stronger and quicker you're going to get cut from the varsity as a senior and that was a moment that changed my life, right? I'm, I, I remember still where I was sitting, 14 years old, and here's this the nicest guy I'd ever met who coached me as a ninth grader telling me, you're the best shooter in the school, and there's 10th, 11th, 12th graders here, and I was not very good. I was a good shooter. I wasn't very good, as I said earlier, and trying to figure out why would he say that to me. And at some point, probably three days later, it sunk in that he didn't say it for any reason other than to help me. And it completely changed my work ethic in basketball and then ultimately in other areas of life. So um, that would be the legacy, I think, is the people that I came in contact with. Hopefully I I helped them become a little better person the same way they have me. Awesome. Thank you. Freaking awesome. That's uh, happiness is shared, man. Got to do it with the people you love. Um, earlier you had mentioned about uh, how you've only been the best team in the nation twice. And I knew that going in, but I also found out that we've been the best team in the Mayak like 30 million times. <laughs> and that's also reflected in your uh, email signature. And I just want to address this real quick. Your email signature is an encyclopedia. And I've never seen anything like it. Uh, for the people who don't know, if you've ever got an email from John Tower, send him an email. Hopefully he responds so you can see this. But it is like the pano shot of the St. Thomas basketball gym. And then every single year that St. Thomas has won the Mayak. And it's got, I don't know how many times, do you know off the top of your head? I think we're at 34. Right 34. Now. Every single year since like World War II, since St. Thomas has won, and then also the national championships. So I just also wanted to ask real quick, why is your email signature so long? Um, I don't know if I can answer that other than... <laughs> it's I, a legacy I, thing. You, that's a cop It out, is a right? legacy <laughs> thing that, well, we... So our, one of our goals in our program, Dare to be Great, the second one, Aristotle said, excellence is not an act but a habit. And so we talk a lot about sustainable excellence. One of our acronyms is INCHES, and it's improvement, constant improvement, uh, no excuses, communication, health, energy and enthusiasm, selflessness. And so those are, those are six pillars of our program. But the metaphor is get an inch better every day for four years, and you're talking about 1,460 days, I think it is, for four years in a, a program. And so that, to me, it's a reflection of all the people who have come before us that I want our players to understand that this doesn't happen by accident. And, yeah, we've been fortunate. We won 13 of the last 14 conference titles. I think Kansas is the only other school in NCAA basketball out of a 1,000-plus teams that has done that. And 
in many ways, that makes me prouder as a coach than two national championships. Two national championships is awesome, but quite frankly, in life, we always tell recruits this, you can go have three weeks where you kill it, and your boss comes in and you get a bonus, and if you go to sleep for the next 49 weeks, you're in trouble, right? So March Madness, great. You won six games in March. You put yourself in a position, but that's awesome. But if you really want to have a meaningful life, how do you do something sustainably day after day after day? And that's going to allow you to lead a good life. You have one great year and you make millions of dollars and then you flame out. Well, that's psychologically, that's not going to be good, but it's not going to be good for anybody around you. And so um, I think the, you know, the email signature, I I don't mean to be overly (laughs) verbose, but it is, I think more than anything, it's trying to recognize that's what's really important is all the guys who have played in this program and the contributions they've made. um, It's pretty special. In a perfect transition here because we stand on the shoulders of our guests. And that's how we grow our brand. And our favorite question to ask is a challenge question. We've been fortunate to have you in our studio because, like we said at the very beginning, Coach Josh Rosenthal and Coach Wally Kaczynski both challenge us to have you on. So I'm curious, Coach, if you have a challenge for us to continue this legacy, if you will. That's And I, I love that's a great question that... I don't know where you got it, but it's a, I mean, it's good for you guys, right? Because it gives you ideas that might be two degrees of separation from where you'd normally go. Um, so I'll give you two challenges. One would be uh, my new boss, Dr. Phil Eston, mm-hmm. new athletic director at St. Thomas, unbelievable guy, brilliant, hardworking. He and I graduated the same year at St. Thomas. So okay. we knew each other. We weren't close. He was a baseball player. I was a basketball player. So you probably got some stereotypes that baseball players would say about basketball players too. Exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll touch on it with him. Um, but Phil is, he's been at Minnesota, Penn State, Berkeley, um, and Ohio State, I believe. And now he's back at St. Thomas's alma mater. And um, so I, he would be, I think, an incredible person to have on here. And obviously he took the job at a time where we're going through some transitions. And so maybe a couple uh, new e- uh, email signatures. Yes, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, but he that would be one person. The other one that I think, have you had multiple people on at the same time? Uh, yes, we can have four people. Have uh, you done that? Uh, we've had, we did Twin Week where we had uh, two different sets of twins okay. on our show. How about three at a time? Ooh, we'll have we there's my challenge the hannon triplets Ooh, even though they're oh. not triplets mm-hmm. they're basically tommy kevin and michael i mean those are how about this those are three guys that i think would be really entertaining um you're gonna have to set three hours aside for all the stories but but do you guys know tommy's story at all i do not, not as much no. so tommy the short version we've had a hand in our program 11 straight years. Mm-hmm. So we recognized his parents, Jim and Sue at our banquet this year, we, 11 years they were there. Um, and we put together a plaque with their record. So in 11 years, two national titles, 10 conference titles, 10 national tournaments, and like 250 wins, something ridiculous. And we had a hand boy on our team, every one of those 11 years, sometimes two of them. But so Tommy, the story is he got cut from his high school varsity team as a junior, his high school JV as a junior. He was 6'1", 260 pounds, bad-looking 260 pounds. And can you imagine getting cut from your JV as a junior? Yeah, it's tough. It's over. Right? It's yeah. tough, right? The, yeah. I always joke with Tommy, the worst kid on a JV, the coach will always say, God, he's a really nice kid, though. I'm like, Tommy, you were worse than the really nice kid. That's how bad you were. <laughs> As a senior, he lost 50 pounds because he went home and you go back to wasps. I tell this story in the book. He goes home and his parents are like, well, Tommy, look at your, like, stop eating 
Doritos and drinking Mountain Dew, and his best friends were Michael Floyd and John Nance. And Michael went on to be an All-American Notre Dame, still in the NFL. John went to Minnesota and then transferred to St. Thomas and played for us. His best friends are like, Tommy, let me help you with something. We're really athletic and we work hard. You're neither. It's like with friends like that, who needs enemies, right? <laughs> Actually, those are the friends you want who tell you the truth. So Tommy loses 50 pounds. He grows six inches, which helps, especially in basketball. And I'm at a JV game his senior year. So he got so good as a senior, the coach said, we'd like you to be on the junior varsity as a senior. Now, most seniors would be like, no, what? Tommy's like, awesome. I get to practice. I get So Tommy's on the JV. I'm at a St. Thomas Academy Cretan game, and I'm there early because it's sold out. And here's this long, lanky kid who goes down and gets a dunk in the JV game. And I'm like, who's that? You don't see that a lot in a JV game. Oh, that's little Tommy Hannon. I remember him from basketball camp back in the day. And then you scroll across to what grade he is, and you're like, whoa, 12th grade. That's not so good for Tommy to be playing JV as a 12th grader. Long story short, we end up recruiting him. Mean, he plays a little on the varsity by the end of the year. War of attrition. A couple kids quit. A couple get in trouble. He's playing on the varsity by the end of the year. We recruit him. We don't. It's a long shot, but I loved his passion. And he ends up coming to St. Thomas. He's on the JV as a freshman, which he was thrilled by. He's like, this took me four years in high school to get to the JV level. He's on the JV as a freshman. As a sophomore, he beats out a couple guys. One guy quits. Another guy gets injured. Before you know it, he's in our rotation of post players as a sophomore. And as a junior, he's the starting center on the national championship team, and he gets named all Final Four. So in four years, that's where Tommy went. Now, Kevin and Michael, if you had them on, they were similar stories. They didn't grow to 6'7", so that's, you know, they always tell Tommy, look, you weren't that good. But those three guys are all incredibly bright, hardworking, great people, great parents. I mean, I can't say enough about them, but I think it would be a blast to have them on the show. That is awesome. And Michael's story is very adversity-driven, too, and that's that's sweet. Yeah, yeah. No, that's going to be great. Not to mention Sue, Sue Hannon, the mom, the one who started it all. Bird, she's the best. Maybe you, you can't need do five it. of them because if you have Jimbo in here, Jimbo might actually be his own podcast. Yeah, no, Jim, Jim absolutely deserves his own podcast. I would even say Sue does as well. I mean, those maybe those two together. Maybe those two. There's a lot of things we can do with the Hannons, and I think you're onto something. Here. And I think the, the, the last thing I'll say about them, and they are some of the best people I've ever met, but they, you talk about parents that were in it for the right reasons. Like they wanted the best for their kids. But if their kids scored a lot or didn't play a lot, they were always the same, right? Kevin didn't play a ton for us. Never started a game. Didn't play a ton. One of the best teammates I've ever coached. Michael didn't play at all. His first two years really was injured one of them. And his, in 2017, his second year playing, so we were coming off a national title. We were trying to piece things together, end up winning the conference tie-in with Bethel. And I remember Jimbo coming up to me after the last regular season game saying, this is the best coaching job I've ever seen you guys do. I've been around a decade now, by far the best. And I'm like, well, Jim, we didn't do this. We didn't do that. He said, stop. My son, Michael, is your sixth man. And you guys just won the conference. How in the world? And so here he is ripping on poor Michael, who had a great year. He's probably the best six man in the conference. But but that kind of banter where, you know, we always talk parenting, love and discipline, and they're incredibly loving, but they also keep their kids humble. And there's a reason all three boys are doing such great things in life. Mm. I freaking love that challenge, man. I'm very excited. There's a lot of content there, Andrew. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so we've been uh, peppering you with questions all day. Or actually, I'll podcast, not all day. That would get very exhausting. Um, but I would say, yeah, we've we've crushed it. This is usually a time for us to pat ourselves on the back, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit of gratitude for the back pocket. Um, but I would like to put the ball in your court. Um, do you have any questions for us? 
How about this? You guys went to St. Thomas. Um, one of the challenges that we always have is recruiting, right? And I think the most compelling messages are oftentimes from former student athletes that we've coached, right? Because it's one thing for me to tell a high school senior and his parents, hey, here's what you're going to get here, knowing that I'm not promising them playing time. I'm not really, all you can, the only thing we promise guys is you're going to be surrounded by really good people. And then at the end of the day, it's what you do with it. But I'd be curious to hear what, when you guys reflect back on your time at St. Thomas, what are one or two things that you've learned that you would also share with a senior in high school now where you'd say, here's why it was special? Mm. For me, so I chose St. Thomas. My cousin played softball. If you're familiar, Kimmy Hassel, she played softball at St. Mm-hmm. Thomas, and she um, loved it there. She was also from the suburbs of Chicago, and that's how I found it. And I was up watching a softball game one time, and Coach Lepshi was watching the game as well, and he overheard me talking about looking to play college football. And he started recruiting me because he also did the Chicago area. And came in for a visit, met Coach Caruso, and my parents absolutely ate it up. Him being Italian, I'm Italian, and many other things with Coach Caruso and my dad. They're they're one and the same. And I was, again, not the best athlete, but I knew I loved this game and I did not want to give it up. And just chose St. Thomas on a limb coming from Chicago, didn't know a single other person. But through those four years and making that decision, I had to really challenge myself to get to know a completely new pool of people. I was A lot of my friends went with clicks that they've had and transitioned to environments where it was comfortable. And I put myself in an environment where I was low man on the totem pole in a football program and I needed to try to make friends that way. Um, so that is a small glimpse of athletically how I just continue to find love in the game and find love in, like around me um, because I just really loved competing. And Declan and I would wake up at five in the morning, uh, sophomore and junior off seasons and work our asses off to try to make a name for ourselves. And we were on scout team. I had the fortune of breaking into special teams my senior year. Declan did not, but we can, we always pushed ourselves to try to be a better version of ourselves for the team. And that athletically, I mean, I could talk a whole podcast and we've talked about it for a whole (laughs) podcast, why St. Thomas football has helped us so much. And then just St. Thomas community as well. I uh, can't say enough about like, we're still best friends of people that haven't played sports with. I, the five of us in this house and five others in another house um, get together every weekend and we're all outside. We're not from the state, which is a cool aspect. Uh, there's a lot of things and I hope there's something in there that a listener is like, all right, Andrew, it's time for you to stop talking because I can take away <laughs> that aspect and you, you shared it uh, thoroughly. Well, what's cool too is like that time where we were both on the scout team, waking up at 6am going to work out every single day. Like I, I kind of miss those days. Like those were super fun because you know, right after that, that we'd go to tease, we'd grab a burrito and then we would start figuring out how to put our podcast on iTunes. And it was like those six weeks of like, first starting this podcast, not knowing what the hell we were doing, but just loving it. Right. And I think back to like my experience and if I'm going to give like one suggestion to like a high schooler, what are your intentions? My intentions going to college were go out of state. I've lived in Colorado my whole life. I am a family. I'm from a family of seven, four younger siblings. I was the first one to go to college, you know, all these things. My intentions were, I want to go somewhere new that I've never been. I want to play college football and I want to be an engineer. So I, the, every school that I looked at, if I had would have gone to Villanova and walked on the football team there and 
was an engineer, I would have loved it. If I would have went to Northwestern where my parents went in uh, Evanston, I would have loved it. Didn't get in. Sorry. But, you know, St. Thomas was able to find it through a family friend very similar to Andrew. And I had everything that I wanted. I had a football program that I was convinced is, was amazing. I had an engineering program that I really just started and didn't really know much about, but I wanted to do it. And I was in, a, in an environment that was like a city that was around people. And, t- oh, just so happens, turns out St. Thomas community is like one of the most welcoming communities of all time. Felt like I was at, this is like my second home. Now currently is my home. Um, now for what, six years, I think five, six years working on six, yep. working on six. And it's just like, you look back at like a simple decision that you made as like a knucklehead 18 year old and how it's grown and manifested because of what your intentions were. So I'd say, of course, there's all kinds of stories. Of course, there's all kinds of failures. Never. I played what, like 10 snaps of St. Thomas football, like wasn't very good as a, in my four year career, but dude, I freaking loved it. I freaking loved it. Cause those were my intentions. That's, That's awesome. I so I, I mean, um, we took our team to Seattle two years ago and as part of it, we always try to have some educational component. And so we ended up, we had three speakers out there. Um, one of them was Dan Jetta, who was a teammate of mine. He's now a VP at Amazon. So he talked to our team. One of them was John Strasburg, who's probably my best friend, uh, for the last couple decades. He never played varsity basketball at St. Thomas, played JV basketball at and he majored in FIED. And at one point, he was running the continent of Africa sales for Microsoft. And now he's back at headquarters. And the third was John Schneider, who played a year of football at St. Thomas before mm-hmm. getting injured and not playing. So here the guys heard from these three guys. All went to St. Thomas. All were incredibly passionate about sports. And you could argue none of them played a single meaningful second or down between the three of them. Yet here's a VP at Amazon, high-level exec at Microsoft, and the GM of the world champion Seattle Seahawks. And our guys, I think, were blown away because it's like this is what it's all about. You go back to sports as a landing area or a launching pad. These three guys all learned how to take the lessons, and they all talked about that with our team where it wasn't just our All-American point guard who walked out of there thinking that could be me someday. It was our 17th man thinking that could just as easily be me. In fact, I might be learning things right now that the All-American point guard's not because life's pretty good for him. But the 17th man on our team was thinking, I'd give anything to just get in the top 10. And so hearing you guys talk, I love, I mean, those are, that is why you'd want to go to a school, right? And there's no guarantees anywhere, but it's where you feel like whether I play a lot or not, this is a place I'm going to grow. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was like a question that I would ask myself and thank God, like my parents would ask me that same question. Declan, what if you tear your sale on the first day? What are you going to do? Yeah. It's like, well, I hope I have good friends. I like the people that I'm around. I, and I, and I enjoy engineering. Right. And or and I at least enjoy the city. Mm-hmm. So those looking at it outside of the main intention of football for a lot of people or anybody getting recruited to play because the recruiting process is freaking hard, man. You never know. It's just it's just one of those things. Um, but I, I what's cool, too, about like being the seven, 17th man or the 68th, 69th guy on the team. It's like um, you have to find value in the things that not a lot of people even see. Right. Like I being on the scout team my senior year. I had to like, I mean, it, it out macro, dude, why? Like you're a senior on the scout team. That's Tommy Hannon's status. Right. But you know, I loved motivating the kids who were there for the first time ever and showing them like, this is what it's all about and being kind of that figurehead, but not really being good at it. Right. Cause I would have the fleeting moments of fleeting inspiration. How do you continue to motivate and be, you know, a part of that team? 
So that was, that's just like a small example of like, I had to really challenge and focus every single day on those certain things. Now it's second nature for me doing it when the, in the confines of a 23 year old's life where there's not a lot of rules. Well, and finding gratitude and things, right? I mean, that's sure. what you were doing is being grateful for whatever you did have, even though you weren't maybe playing as many snaps as you'd like. And there's a lot of psychological research that shows that if we're grateful for things, everything else falls in place, right? Versus you could have all the money in the world and you might still be miserable. And so it's how do you how do you take joy? How do you find joy in those little slices of life where you say this is, whether it's relationships, whether it's hobbies or activities or your profession, um, I think that's pretty remarkable in what you guys have, have done. Obviously, part of that St. Thomas, but a lot of it is you guys and how you were raised. Yeah, mm-hmm. Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate, Pre- that. appreciate that. And appreciate your time that you've given us. This brings us to our final question. Awesome. The last question is a simple question. What did you learn today from the moment that you woke up to when we're having this conversation? Well, I had a great day. I, I, it was uh, anytime I get to teach, you know, especially outside of the season, to me that's 100 minutes of just – working with young people, but I'd say more than anything, and I get inspired, right? Even where I am at life, in life, you're always looking for what inspires you. And I think your generation gets a bad rap sometimes, right? That uh, here's what the millennials are like and, and their stereotypes. And some of them are probably true, right? At some level. And I think talking with the two of you and seeing your passion and curiosity and excitement for both what you're doing now and, and the future. Um, and I get that a lot working with students as well is just looking at life through a lens of hope and optimism and gratitude. I think those are the things that um, often it's easy to poke holes in anyone, right? It's easy to find the negative and be a glass half empty kind of person. Um, So it's really, it's exciting and inspiring talking to you guys and just knowing what you've done with this and starting with a little bit of a dream. We go back before the show, you know, and during the show, we're talking about, Phil Knight and Shoe Dog, right? At some level, you guys probably read that and you're like, that's it. That's what we did. I think back 25 years ago, I started my basketball camp and we had 24 kids in a gym and it was, you know, one of these, I didn't know what I was doing. And 25 years later, we probably had 10,000 kids go through the camp and I didn't necessarily have a vision. I was not a good entrepreneurial mind, but I knew that I loved it and I wanted to work with kids and I loved basketball. And so just hearing what you guys do and um, how you've been able to, to continue this and continue to find joy in it. That's, um, that's pretty awesome. Thank you. We appreciate it, coach. That's our, that's your time on the back pocket. That's a wrap, baby. Thank you. Thank you guys.